Well, good morning. My name's Phil, and one of the pastors here, they call me the executive pastor, which means that I spend a lot of times uh, behind the scenes. I'm not necessarily one of the guys who's uh, as visible on stage, and I was thinking about uh, this week as I was preparing to, to preach and how uh, there are a few people that if you're a part of Mosaic, you, you kind of recognize because they're on stage a lot. And, and then I was thinking about how there's this whole team of pastors and elders and staff that you may never really get a chance to uh, to, to even know what they're doing, because maybe what you do in terms of serving here maybe doesn't interact with them. Uh, and so I just, I want to just tell you guys, there is an incredible team of pastors, elders, staff that are putting in just a ton of time uh, to build this church into a, a place that uh, demonstrates uh, our passion for God in very clear ways throughout our community. We, we are working hard to do that. And so let me just make a, a, an encouragement to you. Uh, at some point, take a few minutes, especially if you're somebody who maybe uh, really only knows like Renault and a couple other people as, in terms of being, you know, the people who are sort of uh, overseeing the church here. Take a few minutes sometime, go onto our website, this is mosaic.org, and uh, look for the leadership page. And then uh, look for the, the list there that'll just kind of show all the pastors and staff uh, that are serving in all sorts of different ways. And maybe uh, scroll through that list, look at the pictures, look at the names, uh, look at the titles, and maybe pick somebody that you have no earthly clue who they are or what they do, and just pray for them right? Just take some time to pray for them. And then maybe if you have a couple extra minutes, uh, they've all got email addresses there, click on the email address and send them an encouraging note. That would mean so much to somebody who is perhaps uh, a tech person hidden away in some tech closet, right? And they're doing their thing, but they don't know, and you don't know them. And that's cool because you get to benefit from how they serve the church. That would mean so much, and it demonstrates that, that what happens here on the stage is really just a celebration of everything else that is going on uh, through Mosaic uh, every day, through our staff, through our elders, through our volunteers, through all of you. Uh, this is all one big picture, and it's, it's great to understand how, how we all fit into it. Okay, uh, we are going to pray, and then we're going to get into the next uh, passage in Acts. Uh, we've been going through Acts, and we're going to jump into the next passage here. Let's take a minute and just open in prayer. Father God, we thank you for a chance to open up your word, uh, to uh, come before you and say, we, we want your word to impact us, to uh, help us to grow more Christ-like, to help us to be um, focused more on you, to bring our lives more in line with what you desire for us. And God, we know that when, when, when followers of Christ come together in your name, around your word, that your spirit does things. And so I pray that today we would allow the spirit to speak into our hearts and minds, to change us, to make us more like you. We pray these things in the power of your Holy Spirit and in your name. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Renaud took us through a portion of Acts 19, where we learned about the sons of Sceva, which is actually the name of the punk band that I was in in high school. Um, that's not true. Um, and we saw how they tried to co-opt uh, the name of Jesus, the actual name of Jesus, to do all sorts of crazy stuff. They wanted to use the name of Jesus like it was some sort of magic incantation uh, to do their own work. And they wanted to kind of uh, just take that and use it for their own purposes. And when, when they did that, things did not go well for them. 
Uh, but uh, Jesus got the glory ultimately. More people heard the gospel. Lives were changed. Even the culture was changed when, uh, when people were so freaked out by what happened uh, that they gave up practicing witchcraft and they were, you know, burning these, these books. And uh, we, we closed that passage with this great summary. It said, uh, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. But you know, when the word of the Lord increases, when the word of the Lord prevails, we, we are going to see culture changes. You are going to see long-held beliefs challenged. You're going to see idols challenged, both literally and figuratively. What does it look like when our idols get attacked and challenged? And how do we react as humans to it? We're going to find out today as we get into Acts 19, verses 21 to 41. So the next passage in the series here, Acts 19, pull out your Bibles, your phones, Acts 19, verses 21 to 41. Let's take a look there and let's jump right into verse 21. Luke, the author of Acts, says, Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So we're just getting a little bit of Paul's uh, travel log here. He's got his his travel plans, really wants to see Rome, but not in like, uh, I've always wanted to see the Colosseum kind of way. Like he has this, this kind of driving, deep spiritual need to keep pressing towards Rome with the gospel. But for now, he's in Ephesus, and he's seeing a huge impact for the gospel, beginning to change hearts and minds. So much so, in fact, that it was, it's bubbling over into the culture around, the popular culture. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Okay, let's stop here for a minute. Uh, no little disturbance. Luke likes to, to talk this way. He can be quirky at times. He just kind of has a flair for dramatic words. It's good. It makes for a good writer. Um, so there was a decent size, no little, a decent size disturbance concerning the way. Now, what's the way? Well, you think about this particular era in church history when, when we were really a young church, right? Uh, we're a young movement. Uh, in this era, uh, we, were, we were a young and early progression out of the prophetic story that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures. Even, uh, even some Christians would have kind of looked at who they were and said, well, I, what is Christianity? Well, I'm, I'm Jewish, right? But, but I'm, I'm also Christian. And so there was some confusion there, right? What, what exactly are we? Well, we're, we're just, we're the way. The way to what? Well, we're the way to salvation, Jesus is the way to salvation that's been prophesied for centuries. It's the way that God provided to deal with sin. The way was, was doctrinal and, and missional. It was, it was religious, but in an anti-establishment, anti-religious kind of way. The way was, was really uh, at its best. It was a movement of action centered on a promise that was fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. You see, the way was planting seeds of the gospel everywhere, and those seeds did not grow into some little social club that got together to discuss their beliefs. At its core, at its best, at its strongest, the way was a revolution about to boil over into the surrounding culture, upending long-held beliefs, 
long-held religious beliefs, radically altering the economy and generally making a mess of things for anybody who was in charge. You know, if there's one thing I've learned over uh, 20 years in pastoral ministry, it's that the gospel makes a mess everywhere it goes. Repentance is messy, just like battlefield surgery is messy, right? It's just, it's messy. And the context here in Ephesus, uh, the way of Jesus had become dangerous to anyone who had something to lose. And we all have something to lose, right? Okay, here we are in Acts 19. We really start to see this played out in the first century AD. Let's look at verse 24 as this not so little disturbance plays out. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of Artemis, our great goddess Artemis, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay, what's going on here? Demetrius, he's a silversmith, probably more like the guy who's in charge of the silversmiths. Think of like the, I don't know, maybe like the union steward who's like over the silversmiths, right? Um, they're in Ephesus, and Ephesus at this time is famous for the temple of Artemis. Artemis was a, a Greek goddess that was worshipped widely. Um, Ephesus was really dominated by this. Interestingly, Artemis was both the god of fertility and the god of virginity. So I'm not sure, I feel like maybe they didn't fully understand how biology works, um, but they figured it out. Um, so, so Artemis uh, is, is kind of dominating the city of Ephesus, this, this temple where people would go and worship this goddess Artemis, really, really dominated. Artemis worship dominated Ephesus in the same way that Mickey worship dominates Orlando, right? Um, not to like bite the hand that feeds us or anything. But um, seriously, though, you know, we understand what it's like to live in a culture that is dominated by tourism, right? People come here every year to make their annual pilgrimages to visit the mouse or the wizard, right? Or the whales or the Legos. Did we cover it all? Does Gatorland count? I'm not sure. Alligators? But we get that, right? We get what it's like to live in a culture that's dominated by tourism, Ephesus was like that. Ephesus was really dominated by people coming to see this statue. Large-scale building, uh, huge attraction in this era. It, the temple would have been one of the biggest buildings of its time. It was made entirely of marble, and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. Listen to this quote from a poet of the day. His name is Antipater of Sidon, Greek poet. He says, I've seen the walls and hanging gardens of ancient Babylon. I've seen the statue of Olympian Zeus. I've seen the Colossus of Rhodes, the mighty work of the high pyramids, and the tomb of Masalas. But when I saw the temple at Ephesus rising to the clouds, 
All these other wonders were put in the shade. This is no roadside attraction. This is a major draw to the people of this era. You can imagine that uh, from first century versions of, of hotels and restaurants to all of the shops, everything here was really focused on this one thing, the temple of Artemis. That was the big draw. And one of the things you would likely buy on your big trip to Ephesus to see the temple of Artemis was a little statue of the temple itself. Now, this is like the, the first century equivalent of been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, right? Except it's more like been there, done that, bought the pagan god. You know, it's, it's similar, but a little different. Um, and it's interesting to me that, that human nature really has not changed all that much uh, in 2,000 years. Um, uh, if you come over to my house, in, in, uh, on the bookshelves, we have uh, several little statues grouped together. Now, they're not pagan gods, don't worry. We don't need to, like, bring in church discipline on me here. Um, but uh, I have, we have a little statue of, uh, of the Eiffel Tower from when my wife and I visited Paris a number of years ago. And, and we have a, a little statue of the, the Space Needle in Seattle uh, when we were there at a conference. And, and the newest addition is uh, a little statue of, of the, uh, the Christ statue from Rio de Janeiro, the one that sits up on the, the hill with the arms outstretched. And because my wife has a little bit of a unique sense of design, ours is covered in blue velvet. I don't really know why. It's nice. The color is nice. But we have a blue velvet Jesus because who wouldn't want a blue velvet Jesus in their house? So this drive to bring something home from, from, from uh, your big trip has been in us for a while, right? And it was the same in Ephesus. People could buy a, a, a silver statue of, of the temple or, or of just Artemis. They could buy one carved out of wood if, if they didn't have the kind of money it would take to buy silver. I don't know if they had blue velvet covered ones. I haven't seen that in any of the, the research, but um, who knows? Who knows? The one big difference, though, between the mini Artemis statues that you could buy there and, for example, the mini Eiffel Tower that I have in my house is that never once, never once have I gathered the family around the little mini Eiffel Tower statue and said, all right, family, let's, let's join together and, and worship the Eiffel Tower. Let's pray to the Eiffel Tower. Like, I've never gotten them together and said, oh, great God of the 1889 World's Fair statue. Like, that's never happened, right? Um, and it never will, because that would be strange. But, but we, th this was a, a real religious significance. These statues had real religious significance for the people of Ephesus and the people that came to, those, uh, to, to that tourist attraction, religious tourist attraction to come and visit that. They would take these statues home and they would incorporate them into their worship as a family. This would be something you'd be glad to have. It would help you in, in your eyes, in the eyes of the people of the day, it would help you somehow commune with God. It had real religious significance. And as a result, there was big money, very big money to be had by the craftsmen who made these statues. Along comes the way and the Apostle Paul. And Paul is telling people, listen, gods made with human hands are not gods at all. Why would you worship this little statue of a building or a little statue of Artemis? And so the people who make those statues are starting to see a real impact in their sales. We can actually find uh, first, and century, first and second century documents of historical writers, people who kind of, you know, reported on what was going on in the day. And, and we can find, you know, first and second century uh, writings saying, man, sales are down. 
Like sales are just down. The, the people are not buying these things like they used to. And so uh, Demetrius gathers together these people who made these statues, and he begins to talk to them. Again, verse 25, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Goes back to money, doesn't it? Always goes back to money. Greed is a huge motivator. Um, so, you know, Demetrius is saying, guys, guard your wallets. Paul's stealing your money. Demetrius is getting, uh, getting right to the point here. He's going right after what, is, what they're going to feel most. And like any good, you know, fear-mongering speech, you have to throw in some piously religious grandstanding as well. So, you could have ripped this right from, you know, the, the, the political pages, right from a stump speech of a politician on the campaign trail. Listen to Demetrius kick it up a notch here. And there is danger, he says, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Let's get Paul. He's ruining everything, right? So Demetrius is appealing to the craftsmen, the silversmiths, to not only protect their business, they also need to protect their religion. Because the way of Christ, the way of salvation, the way of Jesus is going to render all of it obsolete. Now, what is Demetrius' goal here? What is, what is he trying to do? What's he trying to accomplish with this little speech? Well, he wants to stir people up. He wants to turn people against Paul and the church. He wants a riot. And so he calls the craftsmen together, maybe in some sort of outdoor area, maybe a public square, maybe an open market. Uh, so as Demetrius is, is doing his, his speech, he's getting everyone all riled up. And this is not some private affair uh, happening in some, you know, behind closed doors in some smoke-filled room. Uh, this, is, this is in the open. The sound is carrying. People know that this meeting is going on. And that causes the commotion to spread. It causes more people to get stirred up. Let's see what happens in response to Demetrius' speech. Verse 28. <clears throat> it says, When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. Okay, let's stop here. So it says that they that they rush together into the theater. And don't, don't think of this like a, like a little tiny movie theater, right, where you've got closed doors and a ceiling. Uh, think of this like a big open amphitheater. That's I mean, huge. Holds a lot of people. The sound is going to carry. Other people in the city are going to hear this. And that's why as they're shouting out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians over and over and over again. The city is falling into confusion. Craziness. Absolute, like people are, what's going on in there? Everyone's wondering what's going on in the theater. So Demetrius and these other silversmiths, these craftsmen that make and sell these little idols to worship, they are seeing their livelihood threatened. Demetrius's speech has worked. They are upset. They're grabbing anyone associated with Paul that they could find, and they're dragging them into the theater, presumably to do them harm. So they've got Gaius and Aristarchus, 
And the text says that they were Macedonians who were traveling with Paul. So like any good leader, Paul wants to be with his guys. He doesn't want to leave them to the crowd. But who knows what could happen? So verse 30 says, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Uh, it says that uh, even some of the Asiarchs, uh, these are sort of the, the movers and shakers of the time. They might have been politicians. They might have been uh, wealthy uh, people of, of good breeding, you know, in a class system, class matters. Uh, the Asiarchs are the, the upper echelons. It says even, the, even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. You go in there, it's not going to go well for you. Don't do it. We need you out there preaching still. We need you leading the church. This is not your day to die. You've got more work to do. We've got more work for you to do. So keep on preaching and stay out of the theater. And so uh, Paul follows their direction, and he does that. He stays out because angry mobs are unpredictable. And really, this group has degenerated into an angry mob, and it's getting out of hand. Now, let's talk about this theater for a minute. They've actually uncovered it. Uh, actually, what they think is the theater that, that uh, this would have happened. Um, and it holds 24,000 people. Now, that doesn't mean that there were 24,000 people there for this little gathering, right? But it certainly means that a lot of people could have been in there, that this wasn't a small crowd. And you know, a crowd draws a crowd, right? So when you have a, a protest that turns into a riot, there are the people there originally who are genuinely concerned about the issue at hand that they're protesting. And then when it degenerates into a riot, you have the people who are just like, let's go set stuff on fire, right? There's a big protest going on. Let's join in. What are we mad about? I don't know, let's go knock over the liquor store, right? Like it just, it can get crazy really fast, right? Look at verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they had come together. <laughs> most of them are like, I don't even know why I'm here, but let's yell some more, right? Let's make some loud noises. This is becoming absolute chaos. It started out just as the silversmiths, now there are all these people. It's getting crazy. Verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So, the Jews in the city, perhaps fearing that they're going to get lumped in with Paul, they get Alexander, they make him their spokesman. Alexander tries to quiet the crowd down so that he can make a defense. No doubt uh, he, he is there to distance the Jews of the city from the Christians, the followers of the way. And so uh, they look at him and they're just like, look man, there, there's no difference between you and Paul to us. You are Jewish. Paul is a Jewish Christian. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to us. You're both monotheists, right? You both believe in only one God. Uh, neither of you are supporting Artemis. You're not over there praying to Artemis. As far as we're concerned, you're the same people, so stop talking. Um, they just kind of shut him down. And the text says that when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
Two hours they did this. Now, that seems excessive to me. Um, you'd think you'd get bored of shouting that for two hours. You'd think that Alexander would give up and leave. But this tells you just how afraid the city is of losing their claim to fame, the temple of Artemis, the worship of Artemis. Uh, you know, you, you think of some major cities in the world today. Vatican City, you automatically think Catholics, right? You think of uh, Salt Lake City, automatically think of Mormons. You think of Tibet, automatically think of Buddhists. Or maybe if you're a woman of a certain age, you think of Brad Pitt. Um, <laughs> in this day, you'd say Ephesus, automatically think Artemis, right? Just automatically. It's just inextricably linked. So these silversmiths, they were making good money, making these little statues to be worshipped by tourists. And greed is a strong motivator. And you think of these craftsmen or artisans. In that culture, in a class system, these guys, they sat in a kind of an odd place in the culture. Uh, they were wealthy, and that's really all they had to say for themselves. They didn't come from a, a good family. They weren't, they weren't coming out of like the, the important families in town. They didn't have the right last name. You know, they, they didn't have the education. All they had was this skill that made them money. And so that's all they had. That was all they had to uh, in, kind of increase their standing in the world. So you can understand why they might chant for two hours, nonstop chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Sometimes belief in Jesus is costly at a very base level. Sometimes accepting Jesus means turning away from the very culture that defines you. Sometimes embracing the gospel's call on your life means suffering financial losses due to a job change. Here we see a culture that is being turned on its side by the way of salvation that is spreading through the region very quickly. In the long run, it's amazing. In the short run, it's painful because the gospel is messy. Now, Ephesus is in a unique place, historically speaking. As this is being written, the Roman Empire is expanding. And as they expand and the reaches of the empire gets bigger and bigger, what happens as the space gets bigger and bigger? It gets harder to control. And so the, the Roman authorities, they're stepping into some of these cities and they're adding more controls in. They had put controls in on what a gathering could look like, what a public assembly could look like. There were rules about how that could happen and, and what should happen and, and what, how you know when it gets out of hand. And so uh, th this is a change that's happening at the time. And, and here you have a group of people that is getting out of hand, right? Into this situation steps the town clerk. Now, this guy is like your local homegrown leader who has connections to the higher echelons of the Roman Empire. Uh, he's the guy that, that knows how to get stuff done. He's the guy that knows the guy when you need something, right? And people have learned when this guy steps in and speaks, you kind of just trust him because he knows people and he knows what's needed. So, he steps into this situation, because it looks like this riot is about to break out. Probably somebody went and got him and said, man, you need to get to the theater. It's going to be a messy thing if you don't get there soon. So he goes into this situation, verse 35. It says, 
when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Side note here, um, they had a meteorite that they worshipped as well, just for kicks. Um, Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And the passage ends here. We can assume that the crowd quieted down and moved on. One thing for sure is that the gospel of Jesus that Paul was preaching continued to have a massive effect on the culture of its day. Uh, we see that. Uh, we see that, that the, uh, the idol worship went down, and as people uh, began to turn away from their idols and turn to Jesus, it had a huge impact on the culture of its day. But you look at this passage today, and it's easy to kind of look at it and think, why isn't that quaint? Isn't that quaint that, that they have these silly little statues that they worshiped? You can look at that and think, man, I'm so glad I'm not like that today, right? But we all know we have idols in our lives. We'd be foolish to deny that. Martin Luther points out the, that the first commandment in the list of commandments is that you shall have no other gods before you because that's where it gets started, right? That's where the rest of the Ten Commandments kind of come from. Why would you steal, whether it's like, old school stealing or like white collar stealing, right? Well, because you've made money or the things that money can buy an, an idol. Why would we commit adultery? Well, because we've made sex or uh, the physical affirmation or emotional affirmation that comes with it, an idol. Why would we step into all of these things? Because we place idols in our lives. John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. We are constantly inventing new idols for ourselves. But we don't always see it, do we? Sometimes it's hard to know what has become an idol in your life. Sometimes the line between enjoyment and idolatry is very narrow. It's hard to find. So how do you know when something has become an idol in your life? Well, let's go back to this very passage because I think there are some pretty good indicators here. So how do you know that you have an idol in your life? Well, the Ephesians would know they had an idol in their life because they literally had idols, right? Like they had the actual statues in their living room, like gathered around, you know, worshiping them and lighting candles and whatnot. That's a dead giveaway. If you've got a statue in your house that you worship, you don't need to pray about it. You got yourself an idol. Um, now, Obviously, most of us are going to be more nuanced on this. So, Demetrius, let's look at this. Demetrius was watching his livelihood slip away. And what did he do? He was 
freaking out. Are there things in your life that if taken away, you're going to freak out about it? Could be a thing or a person or a privilege. You may not even realize that it had become an idol in your life until it's taken away and then you start freaking out. And you're like, whoa, when did this become an idol? How did this become an idol? So Demetrius was in that spot. He also justified his idolatry because it had some good effects, right? So what were the good effects that came from Demetrius' idolatry? Well, it put food on his table. It paid the bills. Nothing wrong with that, right? Are there things in your life or actions in your life that you justify? We have a saying for this, right? The means justify the ends, right? When you're with your family or friends, do you find yourself justifying something in your life because, you know, hey, there are good things that come of it and, you know, it's no big deal. You try to explain why this thing is not really a problem. You try to explain why this behavior is, is okay. It's perfectly fine. If you find yourself doing that, you might have an idol. Demetrius and his cronies, they, they were looking for someone to blame when their idols began to slip out of their hands. So they pull Gaius and Aristarchus into the theater. Let me ask you this. When someone points out a potential idol in your life, do you immediately turn the attention to someone else? Deflect in order to protect. You might have an idol. The crowd that was gathered in the theater wanted to silence anyone who spoke up. And so when Alexander went to speak to them, they drowned out his words with their chanting, great as Artemis, great as Artemis. Do you silence your critics when they point out an idol in your life? Do you silence your husband, your wife, your friends when they make a pointed observation that something in your life has gone from interest to obsession to idol? Do you shut them down and just talk louder so that they can't be heard? Drowning out the voices of reason in your life. If that's you, you might have an idol. See, the only thing that finally got the crowd to settle down was when the town clerk told them that they were in real danger of being charged with rioting. It wasn't until they actually thought they might get in trouble did they finally say, okay, let's stop. Let's stop this thing we're doing here. Do you hold on to something long after it has clearly become an idol and only give it up when the consequences outweigh the benefits? If so, you might have an idol. You know, idols turn up in the most unlikely places. Silver is not inherently evil. But when fashioned into a statue to be worshipped, it becomes an idol. Now, having a good job that pays the bills and puts food on the table is a blessing that can easily become an idol when we trust the job more than the God who provided the job, right? Enjoying something like a boat or a car or a house or a vacation is natural until it becomes the thing that we derive our significance and worth from. 
Being diligent with our retirement is wise and represents good stewardship until it becomes the idol that we find our security in. Children have the potential to bring a deep sense of fulfillment into our lives, deep sense of purpose. But when they become the sole embodiment of our legacy, they've tripped into idle territory. Pleasure, fun, enjoyment may be just the thing we need to be rested and ready to take on the mission of God. But when it defines our lives so much that we would never be able to or willing to sacrifice for others because of our own enjoyment, pleasure has become an idol. We are hardwired to be in relationships with other human beings. And yet when those relationships cause us to step into sinful behavior and we justify it, those relationships have become an idol. The list could go on and on, right? I mean, we could literally do this all day, just keep on coming up with examples of things that can be idols in our lives. Here's the simple fact. A good thing can become an idol when it obscures the face of Jesus and silences the voice of the Spirit in our lives. That is the most simple definition of an idol. It obscures the face of Jesus. Here's Jesus. You can't see it because you've got an idol in front of your face. It obscures, silences the voice of the Spirit because you've got idols jammed in your ears. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to change. We can't, we can't see it on our own. Oftentimes we get so focused, so obsessed with that thing, that relationship, that job, that goal, that we can't even see that it's crossed the line into idle territory. We need Christ-following, Spirit-listening, God-centered people in our lives who will love us enough to speak up, and we need to be willing to listen up when they tell us, I think you've got yourself a nice, shiny little idol here that you fashioned out of your own hands, and I think you're protecting it. Let's try to give it up together. I'll do this with you. Let's do this together. You know, right now, the Spirit of God is working on some of you. That's normal. That's what the Spirit of God does when followers of Christ come together in the name of Jesus. Right now, the Spirit is bringing to mind in your life things that you know are idols. I know you want to hold on to them. I know you do. You've gotten used to them. They become comfortable to you. They become a part of you. Let me ask you this. Aren't you tired of them though? Just a little bit? Aren't you tired of holding on to these idols? Aren't you tired of all the work involved in, in feeding and sustaining these little gods? that we fashion for ourselves? Wouldn't you like to just give those things up once and for all? Wouldn't you like to be free of those things? I'm going to invite the band back up to the stage to continue our worship, and Pastor Zach is going to lead us in a time of confession. You know, the Ephesian Christians turned away from idols so effectively that it actually affected their economy. What would it look like if we gave up the idols in our lives? How would it affect the culture around us? What kind of changes would we see? I want to close with a passage of Scripture from Ephesians 4. 
For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Look, you've got idols. I've got idols. Let's bring that stuff into the light. Let's together confront the idols in our lives and be willing to lay them down. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we know that when you call us together to worship, that as we gather together as Spirit-filled Christ followers, that we are impacted by your Spirit in a different way. God, I pray that, that we would not run from that. I pray that we would not continue to place things in front of the face of your Son, Jesus, to obscure his face in our lives. Pray that we would not continue to drown out the voice of the Spirit in our lives. God, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to listen so that we can see the idols in our lives and we can get rid of them, not just for our own benefit, not just for our own betterment, but because you've called us together on a mission. You've called us to be light to the world around us, to be salt in the world around us. And we know that when we're weighed down by idols, we are less effective than we can be for your mission. So God, purify us, make us ready. Thank you for your acceptance of us in the midst of this and your forgiveness. We pray these things in your name. Amen.